found myself in my kitchen finally after just not even being able to get out of bed uh, thinking you know what this is I'm just I'm done and I thought it was this really kind of twisted macabre poetic way to kill myself by uh, uh, just stabbing myself repeatedly with my own chef's knife it was this bizarre romantic notion I had of like what's okay what, every, everyone's you know killing themselves in all these other modern ways. Like, what if I just take my favorite chef's knife and I started writing this note and I had the knife in my hand. And I remember this moment. I don't know what it was. Spirit, God, angels, I don't know. But a voice and a presence other than my own posited a question and said, do you really want to die? Jason Robel is the best-selling author of the cookbook and lifestyle guide, Eternity. He was the first plant-based chef with a primetime television series and has taught millions of people how to prepare delicious, healthy, vegan meals at home. But then he hit a breaking point. Jason's struggle with depression inspired him to narrow his focus to the ways in which food biologically and psychologically can affect our emotions. So how did a guy with a career in healthy eating, with a best-selling book, and a TV show reach this breaking point? And then, what did it take for him to get himself through the bad times and into a better place? And finally, how did he get so good at spontaneously belting out Motown jams? Answers to all this and more in today's episode. I'm Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. My name is Jason Andrew Robel. I do many things. I am probably most known for and celebrated for uh, being a chef, a TV host, cookbook author, uh, foodie, lover of flavor, lover of bringing people together in celebration over the act of nourishment, uh, stand-up comedian, which I've been doing for the past two years, which allows me to do things uh, unrelated to food, which is great. And I can talk about all kinds of subject matter beyond that. And uh, just recently got back into music. Music was actually my first love. And uh, I sang for years in punk bands, funk bands, soul bands, all kinds of different stuff. So food is still, you know, paying the mortgage, feeding the cats and the dog, uh, buying new motorcycles and all other kinds of fun material fetishes. But, you know, I like to unleash and do the comedy and the music too. Well, when I think of you, Jason, I think of that, like, exuberant, happy, healthy, funk singer. <laughs> Can you give me, like, just a, just a taste? Yeah. So there's so many songs I could sing. And, and, you know, I grew up in Detroit, so the Motown thing is there. How sweet it is to be loved by you. Ooh, yes, how sweet it is to be loved by you. Yeah, man, you're crushing it. You are from Detroit. I am, born and raised in the city. Damn. In the city, man. And then I've seen you at events, and you're like, 
doing like jumping jacks and hopping up and people are going crazy and screaming and yelling and there's this like exuberant enthusiasm that's just like oozing from you. But that's not always the way it was. No. Um, you know, I've, I've always been an extrovert. I think, first of all, because that was my natural default as a child just to jump out on a stage, even at a young age when my mom got me into theater and acting when I was really, really young, probably about three or four years old. I had this innate, not only fearlessness, being in front of large groups of people, just being myself, but I loved the natural interplay on a live stage of the energetic exchange, like that I would make somebody laugh or entertain them or cause some sort of emotional response in them. And seeing that live and in person in real time, even as a kid, was such an, uh, I don't know, such an interesting exchange. But, you know, for me, um, there's been an aspect of playing the entertainer or playing the the, the hype man or the, the guy in the room who raises the roof on the energy that, you know, for years was kind of hard to maintain because I was struggling with my own emotional issues and, and, uh, clinical depression and, and, you know, suicidal tendencies. And, and about four five, six years ago, it was, it was a dark, dark time in my life, it, which was ironic in a way, because it was also one of the most successful times in my life career wise. And I mean, you're not alone. This is kind of grown into kind of an epidemic. You know, there's 50 million people in the United States, one out of every five adults, more or less, that suffer from kind of mental health issues or depression. Yeah. So, but you have to often tackle it and confront it, at least at the beginning alone. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like, kind of take us back there kind of four or five years ago when you were really kind of in the depths of it. And how did you begin to address kind of the issues of your of your depression? Right around 2012, probably, when, uh, when I got my TV deal with Food Network and Cooking Channel. You know, this was a humongous moment for me professionally. This was something that I had dreamed of for, at that point, probably, you know, 10 years of, you know, I really want a TV series and I want to bring this food and this entertainment and this, this positive energy to the world. But it's an interesting thing, you know, they always say, be careful what you wish for. And what brought a lot of financial and career success also brought a lot of really huge challenges emotionally and spiritually for me. Because I started to choose to take on a lot of pressure in my life of now the stakes are a lot higher because there's a lot more money involved and the platform is bigger. And I felt creatively ready for it. And I felt um, mentally ready for it in certain ways, but but just the amount of pressure I felt to do a good job and, and have this dream of 10 years finally come and I had to knock it out of the park and I had to do a good job. And what basically happened was all of the insecurities that I had not dealt with in my life, all of the abandonment issues that I hadn't dealt with from my relationship with my father from childhood, all of the ego of me thinking like, this is a career-defining moment, don't screw it up. There was such a perfect storm of mental and spiritual considerations and challenges that as I was shooting the series and working on my first cookbook, 
you know, I was just in a, in a spiral and I was working so hard and so focused on the outcome of making these things successful. Like we've got to have it. It's not just enough to have a TV series. It's got to be a hit. It's not just enough to have a book deal with Hay House. It's got to be a bestseller. And I put all of these expectations on myself and there was so much pressure from, you know, my manager and my agent and everyone involved. And, um, in early 2014, uh, after two years, they canceled the series. And the first book deal I had on the table got yanked. And my manager dropped me and my agent dropped me and my partner of three years dumped me. And this was all in a 60-day period. And I found myself in my kitchen finally after just not even be able to, being able to get out of bed uh, thinking, you know what, this is, I'm just, I'm done. And I thought it was this really kind of twisted, macabre, poetic way to kill myself by, uh, uh, just stabbing myself repeatedly with my own chef's knife. It was this bizarre romantic notion I had of like, what's okay. What, every, everyone's, you know, killing themselves in all these other modern ways. Like, what if I just take my favorite chef's knife and I started writing this note and I had the knife in my hand and I remember this moment, I don't know what it was, spirit, God, angels, I don't know, but a voice and a presence other than my own posited a question and said, do you really want to die? And it gave me a moment of pause as I was contemplating doing it, like I'm, I'm just going to do it now. And that moment created a very important distinction for me, which was, I didn't want to die. I didn't want to leave this reality and actually like kill my physical body. I just wanted my suffering to end. Right. That was yeah. a massive distinction. And from that point forward, it was like, well, what does that even mean? So I'm suffering physically. I'm suffering emotionally. I'm suffering spiritually. So I, I have to figure out some sort of protocol to address every single one of these areas of my life because I am at the lowest point I've ever been in my life right now. So, I mean, that was really the thing that kicked off this exploration into brain health and how nutrition and food affects our brain chemistry and our gut and our emotions and, you know, the role of, of really taking psychotherapy and somatic experiencing seriously and, you know, looking at a lot of these traumatic incidents from my past and trying to heal them and integrate them into being more, more present in the moment and having a daily meditation practice. I mean, I, I went full on. Because it was like, if I don't do this, I'm going to kill myself. So it's either I'm going to kill myself, which I'm clear now I don't want to do. I just, I just don't want to suffer. So yeah, you I gave yourself a stay. That's it. I, yeah. I have to figure this out. There's no other choice. Right. No, as much money or time or effort as this takes, I have to finally ask for help and not isolate myself anymore. That was a massive thing. Because until that point, it was like, oh, I can just figure this out. I got this. I've been studying nutrition for you know 18 years. I can, nah, I got this. So honestly... After creating that distinction, Jeff, it was just asking for help. That, that was a huge part of just moving out of that isolation and darkness was just having the courage to say, I'm deeply suffering and I've been wanting to die for a long time and I need help.
And so you're a chef, mm-hmm. and and so part of your exploration is naturally going to be about the thing that you're closest to, right? Mm-hmm. Food. Yeah. Um, so talk to me a little bit about that, about how you began to create the connection between food and eating habits with your emotional well-being and how those things are are linked. And that's a long, there's a lot to talk about there. Yeah. Um, when it comes to the physical part of, you know, this healing protocol that, that I wanted to explore and, and with all the research that I had done, I was, and still am not necessarily a, a, an expert on brain health because that is such a massive wide open field that, you know, even the experts acknowledge like we are just barely scratched the surface on understanding neurobiology. But to me, it was, it was clear that perhaps instead of automatically turning to a pharmaceutical approach, there was a way that I could optimize my nutrition or my eating or eat certain things that could influence my brain chemistry. But I needed to know exactly what was going in my body because I didn't want to I didn't want to take an approach where you know you go to the natural food store and they've got you know the giant supplement section and it's like oh, I have low energy I don't know it could be B vitamins I can't sleep at night I don't know maybe it's magnesium and and I feel like a lot of people in this world kind of take that approach where they put the blindfold on and they they throw darts at a dartboard trying to hit the bullseye and I thought if I'm going to start to optimize this I need to know exactly what's going on in my body so the first thing I did was found uh, a holistic doctor, an integrative medicine doctor here in Los Angeles by the name of Dr. Alan Green. He's in West LA. And I went to him and I, I gave him my whole story. I said, this is what's going on. And we ordered a full blood panel screening. We ordered a neurotransmitter test to get a very clear snapshot of exactly what was going on, not only with my physiology, but my brain chemistry. And that allowed us to create a supplementation plan and adjust my diet accordingly. But not knowing those specifics, it's very hard to dial in what your body actually needs. Right. So this is something that's a very, very clear, actionable takeaway for people who want to explore kind of what's going on in their brain chemistry mm-hmm. and and potentially make changes, whether that's kind of in their diet or with supplements or with other things. But in order to actually understand, you need to do that, you need to do that blood work. Um, to understand where you're deficient. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's my personal experience. It's also the experience of, you know, uh, other people in this field who have um, adjusted their nutrition and lifestyle. And, and I'm, as much as I'm a super creative, you know, wild entertainer, I'm also very analytical and, and I love science and I'm a nutrition geek. And to me, once we got the results back, as an example, with my life, you know, we looked at all my primary neurotransmitters, and I think only two were moderately functioning. You know, and he looked at me, and Dr. Green said, well, it's no wonder, you know, you've been wanting to, like, take your own life. He's like, you, you are scientifically, clinically depressed, and we need to do something to boost your neurotransmitter function. Um, my vitamin D was low. My vitamin C was low. My EPA and DHA omega-3 fatty acids, my magnesium. And he started to describe these corollaries of, okay, here's what these nutrients do for your chemistry of the body. Here's how they affect your mood and your brain. Here's why we think your neurotransmitters are low. And it wasn't just a nutrition thing. It was like, look, you need to go see a psychotherapist and work on a lot of these trauma points that are causing you stress and anxiety. 
And, you know, at that point I was meditating casually. I was a casual meditator. I was going to yoga. But he's like, look, try daily meditation. You know, before you turn the cell phone on, before you start getting roped into all of the responsibilities of your career, carve out at least a solid half hour of silent reflection for you. And I, and I just, I took it like gangbusters because it was, my back was against the wall. It was, it was literally do or die. Like you're either going to do this and heal and pull yourself out of this dark pit or the alternative is, is gruesome. Yeah. So I was very motivated yeah. to wouldn't adjust be, my life. You know, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to sink to this crazy inflection point to actually take care of ourselves? No, but so often that that's the way it is. It's odd, right? So in our society and in the newspapers today, we, we hear a lot about opioids. Um, but we hear, but mostly these are synthetic opioids that are been overprescribed, oxycontin, fentanyl, um, that have led to kind of this epidemic. But there are naturally occurring opioids that can fire in your brain that make you happy. Yeah. And so, can you talk about that? What those are, and how they are associated with what you eat. Yeah. So, so the beauty of the human body is that you know we have the ability to manufacture all the chemicals we need, right? The body is this brilliant machine that, again, we, we have such a basic understanding of. But what we do know is that if we take something like um, dopamine, for instance, as you mentioned, you know, dopamine is this um, neurotransmitter that's responsible for drive and focus and like the get her done and I got this and the world is mine and that very motivating um, positive, forward-moving, emotional state when you're just on fire and you feel like you're crushing it in life and you wake up every morning with purpose and passion and focus. That's, that's a healthy dopamine function. So if we're feeling low on dopamine, conversely, we're not going to feel motivated. We're going to feel like, oh, God, what's the point? You know, every time I try something, it just fails. I'm a piece of crap. You know, they've got a million followers on Instagram and I've got a thousand. You know, those kind of thoughts and those kind of debilitating lack of motivating type of thought forms could be related to a dopamine deficiency. If we're talking about things that boost dopamine, we know that along with endorphins, uh, pretty consistent physical exercise has been shown to boost endorphins and dopamine, sort of that rush you get after you go to the gym or have a really hot yoga class or go running. Great for that rush, makes you feel like you can conquer the world. That's a really easy thing. And that's one thing I wasn't doing. If I go back to my self-care routine, in terms of my depression was I wasn't moving my body at all. So it was like, no wonder your endorphins are low. No wonder your dopamine's low because you're just not moving, dude. So that's a really easy way. Um, you know, you mentioned serotonin, huge one. That's this feeling of calm and all is well and everything is going good in my world. It's the sense of peace and serenity and connection and everything is going wonderfully. Those are the primary emotions associated with good serotonin levels. And, you know, if we eat things that are super healthy, like cacao is good, blue-green algae, spirulina, chlorella, these are all really high-protein, highly nutrient-dense blue-green algae. Um, things like hemp seeds, things like sprouted organic nuts, things that are really healthy in um, monounsaturated fats that nourish the brain chemistry. That's the big thing with this is I think low-fat diets can actually restrict a lot of brain growth and brain development. So fat is actually your friend. I'm a big, big proponent of eating fats for brain health. So if we're talking about, you know, generalized boosting of these, these opioids, these natural opioids and neurotransmitters, there are specific foods we can incorporate into our diets right now that can help to optimize our function. 
And so on your journey, mm-hmm. you were you started to integrate a lot of these foods based upon the kind of diagnosis that you were getting from your doctor and from tests. So how did your diet evolve over the last th- four or five years? Yeah, so specifically, uh, I started supplementing. Mm-hmm. I was never supplementing prior to that, and there's two reasons for that. Number one, a lot of people in the natural food or wellness worlds are like, ah, you don't need to take supplements. They're toxic. They're bad for your liver. And you can get all the nutrients you need from food. I think that that is a noble aim. But I think with the amount of topsoil erosion and mineral depletion in most of our soil where our food is grown, unless you are growing your food in your own backyard and you know what the mineral content is and you're feeding the soil yourself, the amount of nutrients in the soil are horrifically depleted compared to not only our parents' generation, but our grandparents and great-grandparents. So I think food was naturally more nutrition, you know, two to three to four generations ago, simply because the soil was richer, because we weren't destroying it with synthetic herbicides and pesticides. So when people say, oh, you can get all the nutrients you need from food, I think it's a misnomer because by and large, from a nutritional density standpoint, most food is not as nutritious as it used to be because of the erosion of the soil and all the pesticides we've used. But I also think there, you know, for me, the reason I started supplementing three, four years ago, Jeff, was um, in the test that I got, there was uh, genetic testing. And I'm going to geek out pretty hardcore right now, but there, there was a gene mutation that we discovered called the MTHFR gene. And what this means is that my body is not able to efficiently extract, assimilate, and utilize folate, vitamin B9, from food. Well, that's important because folate is really important for neurological development, brain health, uh, in particular pregnant women or people that are women that are expecting have to have higher amounts of folate. So getting an MTHFR gene test is crucial. So what this means is because I'm genetically not able to utilize folate from food, I need to be on a folate supplement the rest of my life. Now, there's no way, there's no possible way I could have known that unless I went and invested in a test. And now I know, great, well, I've got to be on certain supplements, this one in particular. Uh, I do take a B-complex vitamin supplement because that's harder to get on a primarily plant-based diet. I do take a DHA and EPA omega-3 fatty acid supplement because um, I don't care to eat fish because of the toxicity in fish and also I've been vegan for a while. So I do take about five or six supplements every single day that I feel are healthy. And the interesting thing was I was not, I was not a vitamin or supplement guy before this. I was on that train of like, I'm just going to get it from food. But I remember about two weeks into the supplement routine after I started seeing Dr. Green, I never felt this before. I was taking my supplements about an hour after it felt like fireworks were going off in my brain. It was such an odd and interesting sensation. It was almost as if like my brain chemistry was like, thank you, we've been wanting this. So I think the supplementation has been one thing. Um, Eating much cleaner, simpler, more nutritious foods, uh, whereas I don't default to as much sugar or junk food anymore. I mean, sugar was my Achilles heel for most of my life. Sugar fiend right here, like just... Anytime I'm feeling stressed or lonely or sad, just reach for the sugar. So I've, I've done a lot of adjustments to feel better, but those are the big ones. So I wanted to follow up on what you just said, mm-hmm. because I think a lot of people uh, talk a little bit about the association between particular emotional states and particular consumption patterns, mm. right? Yeah. And maybe the first step is, be, is generating the awareness 
to be able to say, okay, well, when I'm stressed, I eat cookies <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, that's basic. But can you elaborate on that a little bit and also kind of give us some, you know, techniques? Are you, like journaling, for example, is that, a, you know, of like literally becoming, having that awareness of like, okay, well, whoa, look, I ate this when I was feeling this way and now that's a pattern. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the resistance to change is a real thing for all of us. Yeah. It's, it's resistance in general. I mean, it's a whole other conversation. But in relation to this, how I started creating steps was, um, you know, you mentioned a creating a food journal. I actually had a tiny journal that I kept in um, and still do. Well, it's in my living room now, but in my kitchen where every time I would eat a meal, it wasn't as important to me to write down, say, the macronutrients or the micronutrients. I wasn't focused on that per se. I wasn't really worried about calorie count or protein. A food journal is great for that, though. And there are online calculators you can use to do all that stuff. But I was more importantly focused on what I was eating and why I was eating and how I was feeling. That's what I was focusing on. So I started noticing, you talk about patterns, right? And we're we're so in our mode. We get in our modes in life that we're... I mean... one of the things I love about all the work that we're doing and we've done the past few years is that, you know, it's it's all about this this conscious awareness and presence of like, can I really be focused on my hand is on this matcha and I'm really being present to the weight of it and the feel of it and the sip of it. I'm going to take a sip right now, actually. How present can we be? It's this thing of like, wow, when I'm feeling, you know, to be blunt, you know, lonely, horny, uh, needy, heartbroken, it, it was, I noticed that every time I would like wolf down an entire chocolate bar or plow through an entire pint of ice cream, you know, and this is not the stuff that goes on social, right? It's like, I mean, I think there's a lot more vulnerability now, authentic vulnerability showing up on social, but four or five years ago, no, and it's just highlight reel, right? And I was caught in that too. It's like, I'm not going to sit here on my Insta story and be like, hey guys, yeah, I'm lonely and, and horny and depressed and heartbroken. Guess what I'm eating tonight? Arctic Zero. <laughs> they have a new vegan one. You know, it's like, these are not the things that I was sharing back then. But I noticed that that was, that was the trigger point for me. Those specific emotions. It wasn't stress around money. It wasn't stress around career. It wasn't, perf- it was just like this idea that th- this, this lie of the mind that I'm going to end up alone. I'm never going to find my partner. I don't have any inherent value as a man or a boyfriend or a, like, you know, and then it spirals into, but I'm so successful and I have all this money now and I'm on TV and blah, and why don't I have, why, why am I screwed? Like, I'm screwed up. Like, I thought that when the money and the success and the fame and all this stuff came, that would be the answer to everything. And it's so interesting because, like, we hear this from Jim Carrey and recently DeMar DeRozan, this NBA player, that they're like, dude, fame and money is, you wake up, like, this is not going to cure everything in your life and suddenly, like, make you not feel less than. And I had my own experience of that. And so once I started noticing in my journal, okay, feeling less than, feeling like a failure, feeling like I'm not a man, feeling lonely, I'll never have a life partner, in those moments... I was getting better at, instead of reaching for the cookies, ice cream, and chocolate bars, having a presence practice of asking myself, what do I really need right now? Like literally stopping myself from grabbing, grabbing the sweet thing and saying, what do I really need right now? And sometimes it was literally texting a friend and being like, 
you know what? I, this feels really weird to request this, but like, could you just come over and like hold me for a little while? And like, for me as a man in American society, like the way I was raised to request that from a person, like a, a not like a non-sexual thing. Like I just need to be held right now and cry in someone's arms. I mean, that took like, Oh God, it was, it was like, at first it felt like I was dying inside, but to have the presence to know that I just needed human touch and human interaction, not the sugar, that to me was the value of that practice. It still is. Hmm. Becoming vulnerable. It's like the hardest thing in the world. Yeah. Um, That would also be a really good brand, ice cream brand. It could be called, what do I really need right now? (laughs) I mean, you wouldn't wouldn't eat much of it, but there might be a pint in every freezer. (laughs) With tiny bites taken out, just tiny, tiny backdated to 2016. Yeah, what do I really need right now? (laughs) Vanilla. Freezer burn. Freezer burn. (laughs) So, So now, for people that are feeling depressed, um... And, you know, over the last year, there's been, you know, some high profile suicides that I think have brought, you know, honestly needed attention to the issue of depression. Yeah. Um, what's your message for them, for folks? You're not alone. It may feel so deep in every cell that you are going through this and you're the only person going through this. And it it may feel terrifying for you to admit that this is where you're at because there can be so much shame. I mean, deep, deep, deep shame and deep guilt. But admitting that we need support and we need help and we cannot do it alone is a critical, critical first step. And I can tell you from direct experience that once once you actually acknowledge the truth of that and how you're feeling and you make a choice that you don't want to suffer anymore and you don't want to die, asking for help, it's necessary. And I feel that once you do so and you are determined to find the puzzle pieces that work for you, the right diet or the supplements or the right kind of therapy or workout routine or a community of supportive, open-hearted people. You know, what, like I said about my back being against the wall, you have to reach a point where it's like, I, I'm going to figure this out. I don't know how. I don't know how long it's going to take. But just knowing that there are so many people who have been through it and pulled themselves out of the darkest imaginable place, the place that you may be at right now, you know, I, I'm doing what I'm doing now, Jeff, and, and really kind of just offering this to the world because my my heart feels so big and open to anybody who's going through this because I know how deeply painful, like excruciatingly painful this is. And I feel like I never expected that this was going to be a part of my dharma or my mission. You know, I mean, these things happen in life, but... I want to do everything in my power just to let people know they don't have to suffer in silence. They don't have to suffer alone. And there are people and resources and knowledge and love just ready right here, right now to support you with this. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. 
Uh, wondering if you could leave the show today with maybe uh, one more little riff, one more little vocal oh riff. Oh, my goodness. Oh, what would be appropriate? Oh, I've got one. You are the sunshine of my life, yeah. That's why I'll always be around, ooh, 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 yeah. <laughs> Thanks, man. You're a beautiful dude. You too, brother. God bless you. Thanks, Jeff. When it comes to food, wherever your journey is taking you, one thing is for sure, you are not alone. Food has so much potential to shift how we feel, but until we make the choice to take control over our bodies and our personal health, we can't receive those benefits. From finding our triggers, to working on mindful eating, to asking around for the right healthcare professionals, it all begins with figuring out how our personal eating habits affect our physical and emotional well-being. Luckily, we are at an inflection point where both the science and the marketplace availability of ingredients and supplements have progressed to the point where knowledgeable consumers can take control of their biochemistry. But the first step is simply generating awareness. To learn more about how to eat so you feel your best and to take Jason's course, Good Mood Food, go to onecommune.com. I'm Jeff Krasno, and thanks for listening to today's episode of The Commune Podcast. Hit subscribe so you don't miss new episodes airing every Tuesday. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.